0: asleep did you have a good week we hope so we hope you used us to get some rest we found a trilogy of stories for you this week we have a theory here that this week's author always wrote with a smile on her face or um maybe it was a smirk you know her kate chopin her story the storm can be found in our episode 138. And there are two others in episode 121. Okay, so what's the big deal about Kate Chopin? Well, she was an important forerunner for American feminist authors. Ah, but she took a beating from some critics. I mean, yes, controversy and actual condemnation followed her when her novel The Awakening was published. In it, she had the nerve to focus on women's issues. Her protagonist dared to have sexual desires and to question the sanctity of motherhood. The novel was a realistic, natural narrative, and it came long before Faulkner and Hemingway developed similar styles. Technically, the awakening was never banned, but it was heavily censored. Mrs. Chopin was so dismayed over this, she returned to writing short stories. And fortunately, she didn't lose any of her verve. Thankfully so for us, there are three, dare I say, stimulating tales ready today. Oh, you're gonna want to hear these. The first examines the provocative behavior of a lovely young woman as she uh, takes control of her young man. Tuck in everybody for Kate Chopin's The Kiss. quite light out of doors but inside with the curtains drawn and the smoldering fire sending out a dim uncertain glow the room was full of deep shadows Brantain sat in one of these shadows it had overtaken him and he did not mind the obscurity lent him courage to keep his eyes fastened as ardently as he liked upon the girl who sat in the firelight. She was very handsome, with a certain fine, rich coloring that belongs to the healthy brune, dark-haired type. She was quite composed as she idly stroked the satiny coat of the cat that lay curled in her lap, and she occasionally sent a slow glance into the shadow where her companion sat. They were talking low of indifferent things which plainly were not the things that occupied their thoughts. <laughs> she knew that he loved her a frank, blustering fellow without guile enough to conceal his feelings and no desire to do so. For two weeks past, he had sought her society, her company, eagerly and persistently. She was confidently waiting for him to declare himself, and she meant to accept him, the rather insignificant and unattractive Brantaine was enormously rich, and she liked and required the entourage which wealth could give her. During one of the pauses between their talk of the last tea and the next reception, the door opened and a young man entered whom Brantain knew quite well. The girl turned her face toward him. A stride or two brought him to her side, and bending over her chair before she could suspect his intention, for she did not realize that he had not seen her visitor, he pressed an ardent, lingering Kiss upon her lips. Brantane slowly arose. So did the girl arise, but quickly. And the newcomer stood between them, a little amusement and some defiance struggling with the confusion in his face. I. Uh, uh i believe stammered brantaine ah uh, i i see that i have stayed too long i i had no idea that is i i must wish you good-bye he was clutching his hat with both hands and probably did not perceive that she was extending her hand to him her presence of mind had not completely deserted her but she could not have trusted herself to speak. Oh, hang me if I saw him sitting there. Natty, oh, I know it's deuced awkward for you, but, well, I, I hope you'll forgive me this once, this very first break. Why, why, what's the matter? Oh, don't touch me. Don't come near me, she returned angrily. What do you mean by entering the house without ringing? I came in with your brother, as I often do, he answered coldly, in self-justification. We came in the sideway, he went upstairs, and I came in here, hoping to find you. Ah, oh, the explanation is simple enough and ought to satisfy you that well, this misadventure was unavoidable, but I oh, do say that you forgive me, Natalie, he entreated, softening. Forgive you. You don't know what you are talking about. Let me pass. Oh, it depends upon a good deal whether I ever forgive you. At that next reception, which "'she and Brantaine had been talking about. "'She approached the young man "'with a delicious frankness of manner "'when she saw him there. Um, "'Will you let me speak to you a moment or two, Mr. Brantaine? "'she asked with an engaging but perturbed smile. "'He seemed extremely unhappy, "'but when she took his arm and walked away with him, "'seeking a retired corner. A ray of hope mingled with the almost comical misery of his expression. She was apparently very outspoken. Perhaps, perhaps I should not have sought this interview, Mr. Brantain, but, but, oh, I have been very uncomfortable, almost miserable, since that little encounter the other afternoon when I thought how you might have misinterpreted it and believed things, hope was plainly gaining the ascendancy over misery in Brantain's round, guileless face. Of course, I I know it is nothing to you, but for my own sake, I do want you to understand that Mr. Harvey is an intimate friend of long-standing. Why, we have always been like cousins. Well, like brother and sister, I may say. He is my brother's most intimate associate. Oh, and he often fancies that he is entitled to the same privileges as the family. Oh, I know it is absurd. Uncalled for to tell you this. It's un. Dignified, even she was almost weeping, but it makes so much difference to me what you think of, of me. Her voice had grown very low and agitated. The misery had all disappeared from Brantain's face. Then, um, you. Do you really care what I think, Miss Natalie? May May I call you Miss Natalie They turned into a long, dim corridor that was lined on either side with tall, graceful plants. They walked slowly to the very end of it, when they turned to retrace their steps. Brantaine's face was Radiant. And hers was triumphant. Harvey was among the guests at the wedding. And he sought her out in a rare moment when she stood alone. Your husband, he said smiling, has sent me over to kiss you. A quick blush suffused her face and round, polished throat. Now, I suppose it's natural for a man to feel and act generously on an occasion of this kind. He tells me he doesn't want his marriage to interrupt wholly that pleasant intimacy which has existed between you and me. I don't know what you've been telling him with an insolent smile, but he has sent me here to kiss you. (laughs) Well, she felt like a chess player who by the clever handling of his pieces, sees the game taking the course intended. Her eyes were bright and tender with a smile as they glanced up into his, and her lips looked hungry for the kiss which they invited but, you know, he went on, quietly. I didn't tell him so. It It would have seemed ungrateful, but I can tell you. I've, um, uh, stopped kissing women. It's dangerous. Well... She had Brantane and his million left. A person can't have everything in this world, and it was a little unreasonable of her to expect it. Please stay with us, there are two more delicious stories from Kate Chopin, right after this. And then what? Well let's find out with Kate Chopin's a respectable woman. <music> Mrs. Baroda was a little provoked to learn that her husband expected his friend Gouvernail up to spend a week or two on the plantation. Now, they had entertained a good deal during the winter. Much of the time had also been passed in New Orleans in various forms of mild dissipation, drunkenness. She was looking forward to a period of unbroken rest now. and undisturbed tete-a-tete, private conversation, with her husband. When he informed her that Gouvernail was coming up to stay a week or two. This was a man, well, she had heard much of, but never seen. He had been her husband's college friend, was now a journalist, and in no sense a society man or a man about town, which were perhaps some of the reasons. She had never met him, but she had unconsciously formed an image of him in her mind. She pictured him tall, slim, cynical, with Eyeglasses and his hands in his pockets, and oh, she did not like him. Well, Gouvernail was slim enough, but he wasn't very tall nor very cynical. Neither did he wear eyeglasses nor carry his hands in his pockets, and she rather liked him when he first presented himself. But why she liked him, she could not explain satisfactorily to herself when she partly attempted to do so. She could discover in him none of those brilliant and promising traits which Gaston, her husband, had often assured her that he possessed. On the contrary, he sat rather mute and receptive before her chatty eagerness to make him feel at home and in the face of Gaston's frank and wordy hospitality. His manner was as courteous toward her as the most exacting woman could require. But he made no direct appeal to her approval or even esteem. Once settled at the plantation, He seemed to like to sit upon the wide portico in the shade of one of the big Corinthian pillars, smoking his cigar lazily and listening attentively to Gaston's experience as a sugar planter. This is what I call living, he would utter with deep satisfaction as the air that swept across the sugar field caressed him with its warm and scented velvety touch. It pleased him also to get on familiar terms with the big dogs that came about him rubbing themselves sociably against his legs. He did not care to fish and displayed no eagerness to go out and kill growbacks, little finches, when Gaston proposed to doing so. Gouvernail's personality puzzled Mrs. Baroda, but she liked him. Indeed, he was a lovable, inoffensive fellow. After a few days, when she could understand him no better than at first, she gave over being puzzled and remained piqued, irritated. In this mood, she left her husband and her guest for the most part, alone together. And then finding that Gouvernail took no manner of exception to this action, she imposed her society upon him, accompanying him in his idle strolls to the mill and walks along the bat the land along the river. (sighs) She persistently sought to penetrate that reserve in which he had unconsciously enveloped himself. Hmm. When is he going? Your friend, she one day asked her husband, for my part, he tires me frightfully. Oh, uh, not for a week yet, dear. I can't understand. He gives you no trouble. No, I should like him better if he did, if he were more like others, and I I had to plan somewhat for his comfort and enjoyment. Gaston took his wife's pretty face between his hands and looked tenderly and laughingly into her troubled eyes. They were making a bit of toilet. They were dressing sociably together in Mrs. Baroda's dressing room. You are full of surprises, my belle. He said to her, even I can never count upon how you are going to act under given conditions. He kissed her and turned to fasten his cravat, the band worn around his neck, before the mirror. Here you are, he went on, taking poor Bovernail seriously and making a commotion over him. That's the last thing he would desire or expect. "'Commotion!' she hotly resented. "'Nonsense! How can you say such a thing? Commotion, indeed! "'But you know, you said he was clever. "'Well, so he is. "'But the poor fellow is run down by overwork now. "'That's why I asked him here, to take a rest.' You used to say he was a man of ideas, she retorted, unconciliated, not appeased. I expected him to be interesting, at least. I'm going to the city in the morning to have my spring gowns fitted. Let me know when Mr. Gouvernail is gone. I shall be at my Aunt Octavie's. That night she went and sat alone upon a bench that stood beneath a live oak tree at the edge of the gravel walk. She had never known her thoughts or her intentions to be so confused. She could gather nothing from them, but the feeling of a distinct necessity to quit her home in the morning. Mrs. Baroda heard footsteps crunching the gravel but could discern in the darkness only the approaching red point of a lighted cigar. Well, she knew it was governail for her husband did not smoke. She hoped to remain unnoticed but her white gown revealed her to him. He threw away his cigar and seated himself upon the bench beside her without a suspicion that she might object to his presence. Your husband told me to bring this to you, Mrs. Baroda, he said, handing her a filmy white scarf with which she sometimes enveloped her head and shoulders. She accepted the scarf from him with a murmur of thanks and let it lie in her lap. He made some commonplace observation upon the baneful, evil effect of the night air at the season. Then, as his gaze reached out into the darkness, he murmured half to himself, Night of South Winds, Night of a large few stars. Still nodding night. She made no reply to this apostrophe to the night, this addressing of a personified thing, which indeed was not addressed to her. Gouvernail was in no sense a diffident, shy man, for he was... Not a self conscious one. His periods of reserve were not constitutional, but the result of moods. Sitting there beside Mrs. Baroda, his silence melted for the time. He talked freely and intimately in a low, Hesitating drawl that was not unpleasant to hear. He talked of the old college days when he and Gaston had been a good deal to each other, of the days of keen and blind ambitions and large intentions. Oh, now, there was left with him at least, a philosophic acquiescence to the existing order. Only a desire to be permitted to exist with now and then a little whiff of genuine life such as he was breathing now. Her mind only vaguely grasped what he was saying. Her physical being was, for the moment, predominant. She was not thinking of his words, only drinking in the tones of his voice. She wanted to reach out her hand in the darkness and touch him with the sensitive tips of her fingers upon the face or the lips. She wanted to draw close to him and whisper against his cheek. She did not care what, as she might have done if... She had not been a respectable woman. The stronger the impulse grew to bring herself near him, the further, in fact, did she draw away from him. As soon as she could do so, without an appearance of too great rudeness, she rose and left him there, alone. Before she reached the house, Gouvernail had lighted a fresh cigar and ended his apostrophe to the night. Mrs. Baroda was greatly tempted that night to tell her husband, who was also her friend, of this folly that had seized her. But she did not yield to the temptation beside being a respectable woman, she was a very sensible one, and she knew there are some battles in life which a human being must fight alone. When Gaston arose in the morning, his wife had already departed, she had taken an early morning train to the city, and she did not return till Gouvernail was gone from under her roof. There was some talk of having him back during the summer that followed. That is, Gaston greatly desired it, but his desire yielded to his wife's strenuous opposition. However, before the year ended, she proposed... Wholly from herself, to have Gouvernail visit them again. Well, her husband was surprised and delighted with the suggestion coming from her. Oh, I am glad, Jeremy, to know that you have finally overcome your dislike for him. Truly, he did not deserve it. Oh. She told him laughingly after pressing a long, tender kiss upon his lips. I have overcome everything. You will see. This time I shall be very nice to him. To complete the trilogy, we again bring you a woman years into her marriage as she comes upon $15. That would be um, more than $530 in today's money, and it may change everything. Here's A Pair of Silk Stockings by Kate Chopin Little Mrs. Summers one day found herself the unexpected possessor of fifteen dollars. Oh, it seemed to her a very large amount of money and the way in which it stuffed and bulged her worn old portemonnaie, small pocketbook. It gave her a feeling of importance such as, oh, she had not enjoyed for years. The question of investment was one that occupied her greatly. For a day or two, she walked about apparently in a dreamy state, but really absorbed in speculation and calculation. She did not wish to act hastily to do anything she might afterward regret. But it was during the still hours of the night when she lay awake, revolving plans in her mind, that she seemed to see her way clearly toward a proper and judicious use of the money. A dollar or two should be added to the price usually paid for Janie's shoes, which would ensure their lasting an appreciable time longer than they usually did. She would buy so and so many yards of percale for new shirtwaists for the boys and Janie and Mag. She had intended to make the old ones do by skillful patching. Mag should have another gown. She had seen some beautiful patterns, veritable bargains in the shop windows. And still, there would be left enough for new stockings. Two pairs apiece. And what darning that would save for a while. She would get caps for the boys, and sailor hats for the girls. Oh, the vision of her little brood looking fresh and dainty and new for once in their lives excited her and made her restless and wakeful with anticipation. The neighbors sometimes talked of certain better days that little Mrs. Summers had known before she had ever thought of being... Mrs. Summers, she herself indulged in no such morbid retrospection. Well, she had no time, no second of time, to devote to the past. The needs of the present absorbed her every faculty. A vision of the future, like some dim, gaunt monster, sometimes appalled her. But, luckily, tomorrow never comes. "'Mrs. Summers was one who knew the value of bargains, "'who could stand for hours, making her way inch by inch "'toward the desired object that was selling below cost. "'She could elbow her way, if need be. "'She had learned to clutch a piece of goods and hold it "'and stick to it with persistence and determination "'till her turn came to be served.' no matter when it came. But that day, she was a little faint and tired. She had swallowed a light luncheon. No! When she came to think of it, between getting the children fed and the place righted and preparing herself for the shopping bout, she had actually forgotten to eat any luncheon at all. Oh, she sat herself upon a revolving stool before a counter that was comparatively deserted, trying to gather strength and courage to charge through an eager multitude that was besieging breastworks of shirting and figured lawn. An all-gone, limp, feeling had come over her and she rested her hand aimlessly upon the counter. She wore no gloves. By degrees she grew aware that her hand had encountered something very soothing very pleasant to touch. She looked down to see that her hand lay upon a pile of Silk stockings. A placard nearby announced that they had been reduced in price from $2.50 to $1.98. And a young girl who stood behind the counter asked her if she wished to examine their line of silk hosiery. (laughs) She smiled just as if she had been asked to inspect a tiara of diamonds with the ultimate view of purchasing it. (laughs) But she went on feeling the soft, sheeny, luxurious things with both hands now holding them up to see them glisten and to feel them glide serpent-like through her fingers. Two hectic blotches came suddenly into her pale cheeks. She looked up at the girl. Do you? Do you think there are any eights and a half among these? There were any number of eights and a half. In fact, there were more of that size than any other. Here was a light blue pair. There were some lavender, some all black, and various shades of tan and gray. Mrs. Summers selected a black pair, and looked at them, very long and closely. She pretended to be examining their texture, which the clerk assured her was excellent. A dollar and ninety-eight cents, she mused aloud. Well, I'll take this pair. She handed the girl a five-dollar bill and waited for her change and her parcel. What a very small parcel it was. It seemed lost in the depths of her shabby old shopping bag. Mrs. Summers, after that, did not move in the direction of the bargain counter. She took the elevator, which carried her to an upper floor into the region of the ladies' waiting rooms. Here, in a retired corner, she exchanged her cotton stockings for the new silk ones which she had just bought. She was not going through any acute mental process or reasoning with herself, nor was she striving to explain to her satisfaction the motive of her action. Well, she was not thinking at all. She seemed, for the time, to be taking a rest from that laborious and fatiguing function, and to have abandoned herself to some mechanical impulse that directed her actions and freed her of responsibility. How good was the touch of the raw silk to her flesh. Ah. She felt like lying back in the cushioned chair and reveling for a while in the luxury of it. And she did, for a little while. And then she replaced her shoes, rolled the cotton stockings together and thrust them into the bag. After doing this, she crossed straight over to the shoe department and took her seat to be fitted. Oh, she was fastidious. The clerk could not make her out. He could not reconcile her shoes with her stockings. And she was not too easily pleased. She held back her skirts and turned her feet one way and her head another way as she glanced down at the polished, pointed tipped boots. Her foot and ankle looked very pretty. <laughs> She could not realize that they belonged to her and were a part of herself. She wanted an excellent and stylish fit, she told the young fellow who served her, and she did not mind the difference of a dollar or two more in the price, so long as she got what she desired. It was a long time since Mrs. Summers had been fitted with gloves. On rare occasions, when she had bought a pair, well, they were always bargains, so cheap that it would have been preposterous and unreasonable to have expected them to be fitted to the hand. Now, she rested her elbow on the cushion of the glove counter, and a pretty pleasant young creature, delicate and deft of touch, drew a long-wristed kid over Mrs. Summer's hand. She smoothed it down over the wrist and buttoned it neatly, and both lost themselves for a second or two in admiring contemplation of the little symmetrical gloved hand. But there were other places where money might be spent. There were books and magazines piled up in the window of a stall a few paces down the street. Mrs. Somers bought two high-priced magazines such as she had been accustomed to read in the days when she had been accustomed to other pleasant things. She carried them without wrapping. As well as she could, she lifted her skirts at the crossings. Her stockings and boots and well-fitting gloves had worked marvels in her bearing, had given her a feeling of assurance, a sense of belonging to the well-dressed multitude. Mm. She was very hungry. Another time, she would have stilled the cravings for food until reaching her own home, where she would have brewed herself a cup of tea and taken a snack of anything that was available. But the impulse that was guiding her mm, would not suffer her to entertain any such thought. There was a restaurant at the corner. She had never entered its doors. From the outside she had sometimes caught glimpses of spotless damask and shining crystal and soft-stepping waiters serving people of fashion. When she entered, her appearance created no surprise, no consternation, as she had half feared it might. She seated herself at a small table alone, and an attentive waiter at once approached to take her order. She did not want a profusion. She craved a nice and tasty bite, a half-dozen blue points, a, a plump chop with cress, a something sweet, a creme frappe, for instance, a glass of Rhine wine, and, after all, a small cup of black coffee. While waiting to be served, she removed her gloves, very leisurely, and laid them beside her. Then she picked up a magazine and glanced through it, cutting the pages with a blunt edge of her knife. It was all very agreeable. The damask was even more spotless, than it had seemed through the window, and the crystal more sparkling. There were quiet ladies and gentlemen who did not notice her lunching at the small tables like her own. A soft, pleasing strain of music could be heard, and a gentle breeze was blowing through the window. She tasted a bite, and she read a word or two, and she sipped, the amber wine, and wiggled her toes in the silk stockings. The price, the price of it made no difference. She counted the money out to the waiter and left an extra coin on his tray, whereupon he bowed before her as before a princess of royal blood. There was still money in her purse. And her next temptation presented itself in the shape of a matinee poster. It was a little later when she entered the theater. The play had begun, and the house seemed to her to be packed, but there were vacant seats here and there, and into one of them she was ushered. Between brilliantly dressed women who had gone there to kill time and eat candy and display their gaudy attire. It is safe to say there were many others who were there solely for the play and the acting, but there was no one present who bore quite the attitude which Mrs. Summers did to her surroundings. She gathered in the whole stage and players and people in one wide impression and absorbed it and enjoyed it. Ah, oh. She laughed at the comedy and wept. She and the gaudy woman next to her wept over the tragedy and they talked a little together over it and the gaudy woman wiped her eyes and sniffled on a tiny square of filmy perfumed lace and passed little Mrs. Summers her box of candy. Ah, the play was over. The music ceased, the crowd filed out. Ah, it was like a dream ended. People scattered in all directions. Mrs. Summers went to the corner, and waited for the cable car. A man with keen eyes, who sat opposite to her, seemed to like the study of her small, pale face. It puzzled him to decipher what he saw there. In truth, he saw nothing, unless he were wizard enough to detect Poignant wish, a powerful longing that the cable car would never stop anywhere, but go on and on with her forever. Good night.